Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning. Uh, we thank you for wel welcoming us into your family and um, calling us sons and daughters. Uh, we just pray that um, you would speak through Derek this morning and um, open our hearts and minds to your word and um, help us to be free of distraction this morning and um, just focused on you, Lord. Uh, we love you so much. Amen. First of all, whoever filled this table with concrete, thank you for that. Um, I was expecting just to like yank it up and come over here and it's, yeah, I know that's supposed to be our table, but see, normally it's over there. So I blame Kevin for this. Um, <laughs> quick thing before we get started, the slide for community groups uh, misinformed you. It said that the Monday night community group is going to be meeting here and that is a lie. Um, they're going to be meeting at Brian and Ginger's house. Um, what? Also... You know what, I was thinking about that before the table incident. Um, Allie and, uh, and some other ladies have worked really hard on putting together an event for, uh, for women this Friday, right? No, next Friday, March 24th. This next Friday, right? All right, whatever, it's March 24th at 6.30? It's at 6. I don't know what I'm saying, so this is great. Um, ha, there we go, March 24th at 6. Uh, we're going to have a speaker. There's going to be some uh, worship. I'm told I'm not invited, so I'm sure it's going to be fun without me. Uh, they're pretty serious about that. I'm not invited thing. I've tried to get in on like all the ladies' things. Because uh, they just know how to party, you know? Okay, so anyway, um, back on track. Uh, hi, I'm Derek, uh, and I have the pleasure of pinch hitting for Kevin this morning. Um, normally, it's it's pretty obvious that I'm me because I dress like this and not like that, but Kevin lately has been um, sort of usurping my style. Um, so if you're a little confused, uh, don't be any longer. I'm Derek. He's Kevin. Um, so anyway, yeah. Thanks for coming out. Uh, we're going to finish, or sorry, pick up in Galatians 4, continuing a thought that uh, Kevin talked about last week. Um, but before we get to that, I'm going to do a, a little bit of what I think is going to be recap. I don't know. I didn't hear the sermon from last week because I was with Alethea Jr., um, a worthy absence. Um, I want to sort of bring us all, make sure we're still on the same page with what's going on in Galatians, right? So if you remember, Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, and it's not just a simple, hey, how's it going? I miss you, but it's, what are you thinking? Get back to the gospel. And there's an issue going on where these Judaizers have come into the church, these, these men, uh, if I remember correctly, they say, you know, they, they, they come from some of the other apostles, and they have a, a misunderstanding of how the law is supposed to relate to grace, how it's supposed to re relate to salvation through Christ. And so they come into this church, and they say, Yes, you have Jesus and you're saved, 
but you also need the law. And so they inject confusion into the church. And so Paul has spent a great deal of time up to this point trying to rehash what the law is and how it relates to salvation through Christ and how it's, it's really not quite what these Judaizers have said. Um, so we've spent a lot of time the last few weeks talking about also uh, the, the role, the proper role of the law in the life of the believer. And, and so last week, Kevin walked us through Paul's argument that the law served one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to keep us under guardianship, he says, until, um, until an appointed time, until a proper time. Um, to keep us under guardianship until Christ came to die for our sins. And so the law's purpose was never to save us, but to protect us. Because the, the 613 or some odd different points of the law were designed to restrain our hearts, to teach us how we ought to um, approach the throne of God and how we ought to relate to God. And, um, but it was never so that you can check off all 613 of these every single day, every single minute of your life, and then you will be justified. That's just not the way it works. And so um, one of the things that, that Paul says elsewhere is in Romans 7, 7, he, he explains the law this way. He says um, that he would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. And it talks about what you're supposed to do if you covet, right? Um, and so one of the things that, that Kevin has repeated a few different times throughout this sermon series is that if if you are running to the law for your salvation, for your justification, then really what you're doing is you're trying to cure a disease with a thermometer. You're not going to get anywhere. The thermometer merely tells you there is something going on here, but it's not used for treatment, right? Um, so the law wasn't designed to save. Because the law wasn't designed to save, it's a burden to all those who are under its weight. It's, it's a burden because, not because it's bad, right? The law is not a burden because it's bad, but because the law constantly reminds us that we're not capable of measuring up to God's standard. Um, How many of you actually sort of read through the Old Testament law? You guys have have read through like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and like four hands go up and they're the four I would expect to go up. (laughs) Listen, it's not light reading. That's that's my point, right? Um, You don't sit down and go, you know what? I want to really feel closer to God today. I'm going to read Leviticus cover to cover, right? Um, That if you do that, I would love to meet you. I did one time, and it actually worked, but for different reasons. So um, if you read through the law, there's a, there's a lot of things that you would expect, right? So there's things like um, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Um, but then there are things that sort of throw you for a loop. Like, why would that be in there? Like, um, don't wear mixed garments. So how many of you are wearing polyester right now? More than you are, Kevin. Kevin is wearing polyester. <laughs> Kevin is ceremonially unclean before the Lord right now, okay? Um, I think probably... Brian is too. Um, so there, there are things in there that, that describe how we're supposed to approach the Lord, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves before the Lord, and, and this is sort of where the Galatians are getting confused, is the Judaizers are coming in and trying to introduce more of the ceremonial law and telling them that they need to obey these in order to be accepted by God before God in spite of Christ, and that's just not the right way. So <clears throat> um, Paul's main argument up to this point, and we're going we're gonna to see this argument fulfilled and, and carried through the rest of the book, is that Jesus has fulfilled 
all of these requirements of the law. The law hasn't passed away, but God has satisfied the requirements of these ceremonial laws through Christ. So whereas the law would have us constantly under the weight of, of judgment because we're not measuring up, Jesus stood in our place before God to meet these requirements on our behalf. But because of that, we're able to graduate from guardianship, where the law is restraining us and teaching us how to be um, heirs. We're graduating from guardianship into sonship, and that's where we pick up today. So I want you to see that the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, even though for some reason there's a chapter break, I didn't put that there, they're the same thought, okay? Um, so again, let me, let me read through this passage one more time for us. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, remember he just got done going through guardianship and the process of guardianship, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So this morning, and this is going to throw you off for a loop, I've got three things that I want to talk about. Um, First, I want to talk about what it means for us to be sons and heirs, right? Um, The the concept of something entirely different when Paul was writing about it than it is for us, right? So I want to to sort of give a a rudimentary history lesson. Second, I want to talk about this concept of adoption, right? Um, because we are not, most of us, we are not um, of Jewish heritage. We, we come from the Gentile line, and so we were grafted in. You see all kinds of language in the Bible talking about um, not only people being adopted as heirs, but Gentiles being grafted in. And so I want to try and flesh out what that means for us, more than just the abstract, like God says we're part of his family now. And then lastly, and I think this is super important, especially as we carry on through the rest of Galatians, I want, to, I want us to look at how the Spirit enables us to experience, enables us to lay claim to the fruits of sonship, right? So it's not just a matter of, of Christ, and we'll explain this in a minute, it's not just a matter of Christ saying, you are in, like, if you have faith in me, then you are a son of God, but more than that, the, the Spirit of God steps in and then continues that process in a very uh, important sort of way. And so I want to talk about that towards the end. So let's get some practical history lessons out of the way. Um, and I'm not sure to what extent Kevin talked about this last week, so if I'm rehashing a lot of things he said, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm probably a bunch of you weren't here last week uh, since hardly anybody was. Um, so this process that we're talking about, moving from guardianship to sonship, this is not an expressly Jewish ritual. Okay? Remember, the, the predominant audience at the Church of Galatia are Gentile Christians who have been influenced by some confused Jewish Christians. And so he's writing to both, but predominantly he's referencing, uh, he's, he's speaking to the, the Gentile Christians. Um, and so he's, he's referring to a Roman ritual. 
right? Um, and this is a pretty classic argument tactic that Paul will use where he, he doesn't want to argue just simply things that are in the scripture because he recognizes that um, if you're not, if you don't look at the Bible and go, oh yeah, that's 100% accurate, let's talk about that, then he needs to be able to bring you in. And so he wants to use this, this Roman process to flesh out a, a, a biblical concept. Um, so it works something like this. A, a young boy uh, like, I don't know, let, let's use my son Trip as an example, right? Um, he's two. At a certain point after the son's born, the family puts him under guardianship if there's any wealth to be had. So Trip probably wouldn't be going through this process, but for the sake of argument, he can. Um, working in nonprofit is not a, a wealthy endeavor. I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, so anyway, I would put him under guardianship, and that means that he is, uh, for all intents and purposes, not my son. I would maybe refer to him as my son. He's my flesh and blood, and he has certain privileges, but those privileges are temporary, temporarily suspended that he might be molded into someone who is capable of managing wealth, someone who is worthy of inheriting an estate. Um, and it was not a very easy process because as, as Paul mentioned at the beginning of, of this chapter, guardians are basically, or, sorry, children in guardianship are basically treated like slaves, right? Um, they had little to no control over their daily routines. There were long hours of instruction and we can pretty easily imagine like stern rebukes for uh, missteps. Um, the father didn't even acknowledge his son as an heir in any formal sense. And at the end of the process, um, when, when the child had passed from childhood to adulthood, a couple of things would happen. One, um, the, the father would give the child new garments, right? Uh, the, the toga virilis, which is you know, the toga of life. And, um, and then the child would take his toys... Uh, I don't know if it was all of them or some of them, and lay them at um, the feet of Apollo in the temple of Apollo. Um, so he's giving up what was childish to him that he could inherit what is given to him, right? And so for this child, it's a pretty easy process because he has been trained by the guardians. It's an easy choice, rather. He's been trained by the guardians. He's been taught the ways of the family and the ways of managing wealth and the ways of being a responsible citizen, because that's a big deal in Roman culture, right? Being a, a good citizen. And so when the father comes and says, hey, I want you to give up all of your toys and I'm going to give you this to signify that you are not only my son, but my full-fledged heir and all that I have, all of the rights and privileges are yours, right? So the kid's not going, but I really like this action figure. He's going, yes, please take these, right? And so Paul says um, in, in verses 1 and 2 that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. But that's not entirely true, is it? Right? I mean, Paul's point is that the child is treated like a slave until he graduates. That absolutely stands. But when I say that it's not exactly true, um, there's a pretty major difference between the slave and the son under guardianship. What is that? Well, the slave's period of servitude is indefinite, right? He's not working through this arduous process, having no rights, having no freedom, knowing that at the end of it, there may be hope of something greater. Whereas the son who's going through this process, every time he's getting beaten, every time he's being sent to his room, every time he's having his privileges revoked or being treated like a slave in any sense, in the back of his mind the whole time he knows this is not 
the way it's going to stay. There's hope of something greater. At the moment when we transition from guardianship to full-fledged sonship, there's a profound change. We go from slaves to sons in an instant. When we were once under the law at the right time when the son came and died for us and was that sacrifice purchasing us out of guardianship, we were instantly made sons. But we were at a point, right, we were bound to these elementary principles of the world. Paul's referring in that, in that verse to a period in our lives when we're bound to stern instruction, distracted by childish things, and the word he uses that's translated for us as elementary principles, I can't pronounce it because Greek is Greek to me, but it's basically, it's basically meaning the, the rudimentary principles, Right? So it's like, it's like when I, I'm trying to teach my son how to count, and I'm trying to teach him that one comes before two, which comes before three, which comes before four, and he wants to look back at me and go, one, two, six, nine, four. No. Right? But my job is to teach him that it's one, two, three, four, five, so that he doesn't sound like a moron later in life. Um, you know, like me, because I'm really not good at math, so I know kind of what I'm trying to protect him from. Um, in verse four, We're told that God had an appointed time for guardianship to end. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law. There's a lot going on here. So, for starters, the fullness of time. At the fullness of time, God sent. This this tells us that God was sovereign in this process. He orchestrated this plan to rescue us from guardianship. There was a point in time where he knew he was going to send his son to pull us out of slavery to the law. That God sent his son tells us that Jesus is divine, yet born of a woman tells us that Jesus was also human. And this combination of divinity and humanity abiding together in one person allowed Jesus to simultaneously uh, live a life that was fully satisfying to God under guardianship and yet stand before God as our representative because he's one of us, right? Um, Finally, that Jesus was born under the law indicates that he was held to the very guardianship that Paul is talking about. He lived fully and completely under the guardianship of the law and he did so perfectly. And because of his perfection, he was not only an accept, he was the only, sorry, because of his perfection, he was the only acceptable sacrifice to God that would completely satisfy the requirements of the law. You see, the law, in addition to all of its rules and regulations, also offered forgiveness. Right? We forget that a lot of times when, when somebody would say, oh, well, what about this law? That seems unfair. What about this? Should I be stoned? Um, well, let's not forget the other half of the law because in addition to the do's and don'ts, there was also the, and when you mess this up, here's what you do. And so there's a system of sacrifices installed. And the system of sacrifices required that depending on what was called for, whether it was a bull or a dove or a, a lamb or whatever, that it had to be your best, your, your, your most prized 
member of the flock, your most prized fruits, whatever the case may be, it had to be your best. But the problem was that even though you were required to offer the best you had, the best you had wasn't good enough. The best you had wasn't perfect. The best you had still came from a world that was broken by sin and and carried the mark of sin on it. And so the sacrifices piled up and piled up and piled up. You were giving sacrifices daily. When Jesus died, he became the perfect sacrifice we always needed in order to move from guardianship to sonship. This means that we have been adopted as sons, making us heirs with Christ of all the riches of our Heavenly Father. Now, let's get something out of the way here. And and, and again, I'm not sure to what extent Kevin covered this last week, so forgive me if I'm rehashing. Paul is very intentionally referring to all of us as sons. It's not a misprint that he, sa- he doesn't say sons and daughters. It's not um, something where we look at that and go, oh, well, he's just, he's a little culturally ignorant of 2017. He is intentionally saying that we are all now sons. Why? Um, I know some of you got to be asking that, especially in today's like political and social climate. Um, but let's, let's take a look at something Paul says towards the end of chapter 3. So I'm going to jump back and then we'll, We'll pull it forward. Um, so starting in verse 25 of chapter 3. But now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's, <coughs> Abraham's offspring. <coughs> Pardon me while I die. Um, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So when Paul writes that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, he is not saying that Christ eliminates that which makes us distinct, either culturally or socioeconomically or physically right? We maintain our distinction. What he's, he's, um, sorry, he is not saying, right, when he says there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, he is not saying that those distinctions are bad. What he's saying is that in Christ, meaning when we have faith in Jesus Christ and honor him as our Savior, when we are found in Christ, when we have put on Christ, We stand before God on equal footing regardless of our present circumstances. Now, in 2017, we take the concept of equality for granted. It's it's sort of ingrained in us. If you go to college, you take tons of, of, like you interact with tons of people who are going to reinforce over and over that equality is good, equality is desired, diversity is good, diversity is desired, and that's, that's perfectly fine. That's good stuff. But we're missing the point when we think about this as people in 2017 and not contextualizing it for first century Rome. Paul is saying to the Jews, you cannot look down on the Greeks because they're not, they're not Jewish. Right? You can't force the law on them to make them culturally Jewish, which was the, one of the first things he addresses. Right? Remember when he calls Peter out? for forcing the law on people and maintaining these legal distinctions. Paul's saying, you can't do that. 
Paul saying to slaves, you have equal value before the God of the universe with your masters. And to the masters, he's saying, you cannot lord over your slaves as though they are nothing because they are valuable to God. Do you understand how subversive that is to the cultural norm of the day? And, and then he goes on to say, there's neither male nor female. God values men and women equally under the law before his throne. There is no distinction. He doesn't look at men and say, well, men get a pass. Women, on the other hand, right? It's the same. We all have equal access to the Father through the Son. Do you get the magnitude of that? Every aspect of Roman life, just about every aspect of Roman life, favored men over women. Favored masters over slaves. Every aspect of Jewish life favored Jews over Greeks. And Paul is saying Christ turns all of that on its head. We're in a new kingdom with new realities. This is not the same. Like Paul is not elevating women with respect to men, right? He's not tying their value to men. That's important. Don't miss that. Um, Society may place different value on others under the law, whether implicitly or explicitly, even today. But God does not. The only differentiation that matters to God is whether or not you're in Christ, so an heir, or if you are enslaved and not under Christ. So I think it would be helpful here to to put ourselves in the minds of Paul's audience and understand that, right, remember, he's not merely writing to the Jewish Christian members of the Galatian church. And so, whereas the Jews would hear his message on guardianship and sonship, and they're pretty quickly relating to, okay, so the law is our guardian, and then Christ came, and then we were sons. Like, that's a pretty logical progression for them. But, but remember, the majority of his audience is likely, like most of us, they're Gentiles. They weren't under the law. They were no less enslaved, right? Paul references later on uh, in chapter 4, maybe in the beginning of chapter 5, um, the, the elementary principles that the, the pagan Gentiles were tied to. That's every bit as much slavery, right? So whether your, your legalism is tied to the law of God or like pagan principles, legalism is legalism and it's elementary principles, right? Um, but for the, the Gentiles, they're processing this slightly different. And so... <clears throat> They're not thinking about someone who is obviously an heir becoming a full-fledged member of the household. They're thinking about somebody who is a slave, not a member of the household, being brought in through a process of adoption. Because this was the other, the other out for a, a wealthy person, right? A, a wealthy family, if they didn't have sons, because remember, daughters didn't inherit anything, Sons, if they didn't have any sons, they could go to one of their slaves or go to the slave, uh, some slave they knew who they kind of respected and kind of liked, and they could purchase that slave's freedom from their master and give them sonship. So the Jews reading this are, are likely understanding this from, from the perspective of being the biological children. They were, after all, God's chosen folks. They had a long, albeit spotty history of knowing, serving, and following God. But the Gentiles in Paul's audience, 
are thinking about this from the outside. So, so let's think about that for a second. What does it mean that we are adopted by God? Um, it hinges on this concept that um, a, a transaction has to take place. A, a price must be paid. Um, so under the Roman system of slavery, we have to remember that a person was generally speaking only enslaved as long as he or she was unable to afford their freedom. Now, what do we know about the law? If the law is telling us what is required of us, if that is laying out for us the cost of sonship, we can look at that and be fairly certain that we're not making the cut. Right? Again, go back and read through the law. There are things that you cannot control about yourself that are under the law saying you can't do those things. Right? Um, I'm not going to share my favorite example of that because, you know, it's Sunday morning. But uh, there are examples. So, Let's think about this, right? So think about passages like uh, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, where, where Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is, in Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it on the cross. So Christ purchased our freedom, those of us who were not born under the law with the hope of redemption, by paying our full debt. And the imagery that Paul uses here of nailing a record of debt to the cross is not insignificant, right? He chose this for a very specific reason, because if you were being crucified, in addition to yourself being nailed to the cross, you know what else they nailed to the cross? The list of reasons why you were being crucified. Your record of debt against the Roman state that you were paying with your life. And you know what Jesus's record of debt said? The, the thing they nailed to the cross with him? It says simply, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. It's almost as if in that moment, God was redeeming even the mockery of the Roman soldiers who were crucifying Jesus to remind people that Jesus is the only one who could have paid this debt because as the Son of God, fully divine, fully human, he was the only one who could hang on the cross, be our sacrifice, and pay our debt to purchase us out of a life of slavery and into bring us into a life of freedom. In fact, when Paul writes in, in verse 5 that God sent his son in order to redeem those under the law, he's saying precisely this, that God was paying for our freedom so that we would no longer be slaves at the very moment of adoption. Again, Full rights and privileges of the members of the of a member of the family are conveyed to the slave. There's no more steps. There are no more fees. Your identity is no longer that of a slave, but that of an heir. <clears throat> it also gives us something new. It gives us equal portion with Christ. Now, spiritually, you might have some concept of what's going on here because we can all recognize that uh, regardless of to, like, what, to what degree our sin manifested itself before Christ and, and how we're different now, we all kind of understand that there was an old life and now there's a new life. But um, 
the, the practical aspects of adoption, I think, for most of us are nothing more than, than really an abstract concept. Because um, I'm sure if we did a poll in here, we'd see that many of us grew up in typical families, meaning that we knew one or both of our biological parents, but we certainly probably weren't adopted. Now, there might be a few of us in here that, that can fathom what that means, and my wife is one of those people. Um, and I kind of, I got her permission to, to share a little bit about this because I think it's, it's really important to, um, to make this point. Um, so, Caitlin does not know her biological father, right? Um, he was never involved in her life, and, and as much as we know, um, and I've, I've, I've been a part of her life for a very, very long time, um, it doesn't seem like he's been really all that interested in changing that, whoever he is. Um, but there is someone that she's always thought of as a dad, and uh, this is the man who sort of helped raise her, and her, his name is Marlon, um, you know, like the fish. Uh, I asked him that, by the way, whenever he told me his name. I wanted to make sure I was getting it right, that it wasn't Marvin. I was like, you mean Marlon, like the fish? He goes, yeah, 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 just let it go. Um, great way to meet your future in-law. Um, so, so one day, not long after Caitlin and I started dating, um, this guy Marlon, who she'd always thought of as her father, came to her and asked if he could formally adopt her. Um, and this was when she was 17, I think. Um, and you're probably thinking, like, so what's the big deal, right? He, he already, she already kind of thought of him as uh, her father, and he was already kind of filling that role. Um, but you're missing the substance of my point here. The concept of having a father pales in comparison to the presence of a father, to, to having that concept made a reality. When Marlon asked that question, Caitlin broke down in tears out of joy because before Marlon adopted her, he wasn't legally her father. There was no weight behind it. When she called him dad, it meant nothing. It was merely a term of endearment, right? More than that, you have to understand what Marlon was willing to do in order to make Caitlin a member of his family. So for starters, right, there's the, the formal cost of adoption. He wasn't going through an adoption process. Like she wasn't, you know, one of several orphans that an agency sort of paired a family up with. Um, but there's still cost, right? So um, he still had to hire an attorney to file papers to make it legal, Right? Then he had to have an attorney change legal documents like his will and um, his living, uh, the, the living will, like how to handle his, um, his end-of-life process if he were to get sick. Like they had to make Caitlin a part of that process, and that's not cheap. I just did a will with my wife, because now that we have a kid, that's kind of important, and it is a bit pricey. He willingly did that. Then there's all the additional costs that come just from having a child. Right? So um, we can think of things like uh, education. That, that includes tuition, room and board, books, assistance through college, right? For, for when you get a flat tire or your car breaks down or you get into an accident or um, you're, you're lonely and your dad just wants to come visit. That's a, that's a long weekend trip. Then there's the, uh, the intangible things like insurance and protection, all these other things that become a part of your life when you have a child that, that you don't have to go out and purchase. They just kind of cost money anyway, right? They don't, you don't even get to hold it. And on top of all that, there's the fact that Caitlin was, for a few different reasons, 
a, a symbol to Marlon of a very painful period in his life. And in spite of that, he still wanted to make her his daughter. He looked at Caitlin and saw her as valuable enough to spend whatever it took, endure whatever hardship, real or imagined, it might bring him to make her his daughter. It's beautiful. And this is what God has done for you. He has looked at you in your circumstances, your sin, your brokenness, your spiritual poverty. He has heard you when you cry out against him. He has known when you are angry with him. He has seen you in your rebellion, standing tall against him, trying to make your own way and running away from him. He has seen this time and time and time again in us. And still examined our debts, counted the cost of adopting us, and seen us as worthy of the price. And understand, while the Father sent the Son to pay the debt on our behalf, the Son did so willingly. It was not under duress. And now that our debt's paid, why would we run back to slavery the slavery from which we've been saved? Why run to legalistic superstitions or some pagan idea that regardless of what angle we try to argue it and try to justify it, really just boils down to us trying to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, whether that's to say we don't need God, we don't need him in this moment, we don't need him in this decision, we don't need him in our lives, or to say that I want to be worthy of God when God looked at you and said you're worthy. When we run back to the idea that we can earn God's affection, we're actually rejecting it. It'd be as if um, when asked if she'd be willing to be his daughter, Caitlin said, I'm not ready yet. I haven't quite gotten there. And he's saying, well, I've already spent the money, so what do we do now, right? And she, she puts off a relationship. She puts off getting to know him. She puts off appreciating, truly appreciating what he's been willing to do for her because she doesn't feel like she's quite there yet. When we run back to whatever elementary principles defined us prior to our adoption, we're living as though we are only half-purchased slaves. But a slave who is half-purchased is still fully enslaved. And you're choosing to put that on you if you have put on Christ and yet still run back to these elementary principles. Paul even explicitly asks this in chapter 3, right? He says, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Like, God already did the work. What are you adding to it? In other words, if you have the seal of adoption, if, if you have the Spirit of God in you making you a child of God, are you really going to continue trying to justify yourself through legalism? We would look at that intellectually and say, well, of course not. We're not going to do that. This is an important concept that we're going to see woven throughout the remainder of Galatians, that, that we are sons and that we know we are sons because of the work of the Holy Spirit, right? So um, one of the things that I love about Paul, and that I don't like about James, that's another question, is that Paul will say, here's a reality, here's a reality of Scripture, and here's how you know it, Right? So he kind of puts his money where his mouth is. He says, you are adopted as sons, you are heirs with Christ, and you know it because of the work of the Spirit in your life. 
And now the rest of Galatians, he's now going to pivot from you don't need the law to you need to understand the Spirit has sealed your adoption as a son. This is the turning point. So look at verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, see what I mean? So he's given you the idea and now he's backing up the concept with some evidence. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So um, a few thoughts here, right? Um, first of all, what, what is it about the spirit that that lets us know that we have been adopted as sons. Um, so, <clears throat> right, remember I said that when the point of adoption, we instantly go from slave to heir, right? That's an instant thing. That's a binary action. It either is or it isn't. It's not more of this later on. It, it just is or it is not. You're not kind of almost there and sort of, and then all of a sudden, and then more. It's just yes or no. You follow me? So the adoption is binary. It happens or it doesn't. The work of the Spirit that comes along after that is a progressive reality, right? It, it, it is more and more evident the more you walk with Jesus, the more you live a life as a believer. And there are really three main hallmarks that, uh, that come along with this. And make sure, like, I want to make sure that I'm communicating this very clearly. I am not saying that you get more of the Spirit, right? Um, once you're saved, you have the Spirit, right? You are empowered by the Spirit. That happens if you are in Christ. What I'm saying by progressive is that the effect of the Spirit in your life continues to grow and mature the longer you walk. Just want to make sure that I'm clarifying that. I don't want to like accidentally be heretical, um, which has happened before, but we get over it. Um, so the work of the Spirit is sometimes subtle, Sometimes you, you can't really tell. Sometimes it's overwhelming, and with, with big, fat, ugly tears, you realize that something is now true of you that was not before, or vice versa, and that it's been a victory um, of the Spirit. But the Spirit is always progressing. And again, we can see the work in three basic ways. So first, there's this new relationship that we're given with the Heavenly Father. And so we see this at the end of verse 6. We see the Spirit cries out to our God, to God from our hearts. The word Abba is not a formal reference, but rather it's a profoundly personal one. It's like when my son's scared, he doesn't stand up in his crib and go, um, Father, I think there's something in the closet. Like he stands up and screams Daddy through tears because he needs me. He knows that when he cries out to me, I will hear him and do what I can for him. Now, in his mind, I don't know that he understands that I can't always do everything, and I want to keep him in that mode right now where he thinks that I can do everything. Um, but I think i got about two more years of that. Um, but we have that sort of relationship with God the Father because of the Spirit empowering it in us. Empowered by the Spirit, there's going to be times in our hearts when we feel this urgent need from our Father in heaven. In those moments, we'll, we're going to cry out, sometimes through tears, sometimes not. 
um, for God and know that he hears us. So for a Christian, when, when we sit down and pray, not to say that there's not going to be like some dry seasons in your prayer. God knows I've experienced some, but, but there's still this knowledge that, that God is there, that God hears us, right? Second, there's the fact that, um, the fact, sorry, second, the fact that Paul is referring to calling out implies that the mark of a spirit carries with it not just the sense of need, but the ability to call out to our Father. Prayer is as much an admission of need as it is a practical way to connect with God. When we pray, we're acknowledging that God is bigger than our sin, bigger than our needs, bigger than our concerns, and we're asking him for help. Furthermore, our prayers are aided by the Holy Spirit in many ways, namely by being intimately familiar. The Spirit is intimately familiar with our needs, our concerns, and speaking to God with us. So Paul writes in Romans eight twenty six and 27, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Um, so it's like sometimes we get down and pray, and we start praying, and the Spirit's like, no, pray for this, and kind of goes over top of us. Um, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts, who, and he who searches hearts knows that in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, according to the will of God. So while prayer, even for the most fervent believer in Christ, can sometimes feel routine, there remains a warmth of affection that we feel in speaking with God in prayer. Not only that, but this passage in Romans tells us that there are even times when we're not calling out or where we're trying to call out and can't because we're too brokenhearted, too lost in the moment, and the Spirit will, in those moments, stand in for us and communicate with God on our behalf right? When a slave calls out to their master, there's no guarantee of response because the slave has no right to call out to their master. But when a son cries out to his father, he's exercising his privilege as a member of the household and the father will respond. So too, when we cry out to God, we are exercising our right and we are empowered by the spirit as we do so. And third, and I think this is probably the most important aspect of uh, the work of the Spirit, our minds and our hearts are transformed by the Spirit's influence in our lives. Very careful not to drop that. Um, we call this sanctification in the church, right? So this, this influence that over time grows is known as sanctification. So whereas adoption, justification is an instant, sanctification is a lifelong process empowered by the Spirit. So time and again, we see in the Scriptures um, <clears throat> that God instructs his people to be knowledgeable of the words he has sent to them through his prophets, right? Um, this concept carries over in the New Testament where we're told to allow the Word of God to dwell richly in us. That's Colossians 3.16, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we read God's Word. That's in Romans 12.1 and 2. And Jesus directly ties the Scriptures to the power of God in Matthew 22.29. All of this is driven by the Spirit of God, whom Jesus refers to as our helper for this very purpose. God is, is saying the Spirit will help us in this. Um, in John 14, 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And I, I know I'm not alone in experiencing this, but, but the more time you spend in the Word, the more effort you put into understanding it and letting it search your heart and not challenging it with your own um, prerogatives, your own perceptions, um, then this crazy thing happens that when you're in moments of temptation or you're in moments of struggle or you're in moments of fear and pain, the, the, the Word just echoes in your mind, right? Um, I, the, the, the last week has been um, a pretty difficult week for me. Uh, not just like uh, because of stress at work, that's kind of normal, but um, there's a, a family in Hawaii that I, I've been watching um, from a distance. I know them through uh, some other friends. I, I really don't know them that well. And they have a three-year-old that had stage four neuroblastoma. And I've watched this kid um, through their social media page, uh, be healthy and happy. And I've seen him have uh, very, very low valleys. And um, about two weeks ago, he went into hospice. And on Friday, the night before Caitlin and Tripp went to Virginia, he died. And I just sat there on the couch with my wife and I cried for an hour. This is like 11 o'clock when I see this. And I went into Tripp's room and woke him up at, you know, 11, 11.30 and just held him with my wife. And, and we prayed and, and we just held our son and, and cried out, like, why? You know, I, I don't understand. This is not even my family. I don't even know them. And it, it's just, like, broken my heart. And, and in that moment, I just hear all of these different stories in the scripture that I've read comforting me, reminding me that this is, one, not uncommon, that two, it's not the way things are supposed to be, and three, God will fix this in the end, right? The sin that allowed this to happen will not only not, we're, will not, only not be guilty of it anymore, but it won't be a presence in our reality. And as much as it still hurts to see their suffering, I have hope. Because the Spirit's reminding me of the promises of Scripture, right? That's huge. All this is ours, not because we have obeyed the law, but because we are sons of God. If this is true of us, then our obedience is not out of routine and not out of compulsion, but because we are loved. Back to my example of Caitlin and her dad for a second. She loves and honor him, not so that he will call her his daughter, but because he calls her his daughter. It's very important to understand. The relationship is so much sweeter between Caitlin and her dad simply because Caitlin is intensely aware of what it cost him to be her father. She was chosen. She didn't earn that. She can rest in the fact that he chose to love her and make her his own, and out of that flows a deep and loving relationship that they couldn't have otherwise. God paid a great price for us. He purchased you out of slavery. He gave you his spirit to guide you and count you as equal in value to his own son. In spite of whatever baggage you come with, 
And, and here's perhaps the most important aspect of this truth, right? Um, we've been talking about inheritance and being an heir, but what are we an heir of? What have we inherited, right? Um, I don't know about most of you in this room, but since I've become a Christian, I have not become richer, right? It's not like I open my door and there's like a leprechaun and a pot of gold that I can just go to. And he's like, here, it's because of Jesus, right? Um, we have inherited access to the Father. So, Jesus, right? So I want you to, to think of it this way. You, we all know the story of Jesus in the garden before his crucifixion, right? What does he do? He kneels down and he prays. He cries out, Abba, Father, to the one he knows is his father. And what does he get in return? What is the response? Silence, right? Under guardianship, treated as a slave for our benefit, he was rejected by his father in a time of need so that we, when we call out, can have access. What we have gained in this transaction through our sonship is access to the Father, the substance of everything we think we want. We have to realize this. We have to realize this and make this true see that this is true of us. We have to understand that we are freely given in Christ everything we could hope to obtain by obedience to the law. There's no point in going back and trying to earn anything because everything we need is given to us. Redemption from slavery, justification before God, and a continuing renewal, this continuing gospel realignment that we've talked about at other points in this sermon series. Um, continual gospel realignment that displays the fruits of our shared sonship with Christ. And those fruits are made available to us through the Spirit of God. So why do we run back to these elemental principles, these, um, uh, these elemental principles of our spiritual youth? Why, when full sonship is already ours, um, well, we don't take full advantage of what God has given us. If we want to take full advantage of our newfound identities as sons rather than slaves, we must call out to our Father in prayer and study his word. And then and only then will we experience what has been made true of us as heirs. Um, so I'm going to pray in a second. We're going to do communion. The uh, stuff is over here on the side, self-serve. Um, so while we're, while we're doing communion, I, just, I would really like it for you guys to, to reflect on this. What... Um, what God has done for you that he could call you his own and, and what is it that we're doing to continue to that work on, in the flesh, right? Um, so I'll pray and we can move on. Father, I thank you for um, your great mercy, for your grace that, that you looked on us in our sin, in our rebellion and chose to pursue us. You chose to pay the debt that we had accrued under the law to make us your sons. God, thank you for um, the, the fact that we know you value us, that, that you love us, and I pray that we would rest in that and that our obedience would flow through the knowledge that we are loved and adored by choice, not because we earned it, so that our obedience is not out of compulsion. 
Father, may your spirit help us to understand this truth that we would grow in a knowledge of what it means to be an heir in your kingdom, that, we, that it would empower us, that it would um, cause the, the word to dwell richly in us and affect our lives to make us different than we were when this journey first started. In Christ's name we pray, amen.